starting in verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with him. And he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. This is the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God. May we all struggle with this scripture like Pastor Jennifer has so that we can find the good news in it. And may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Much to the dismay of the large crowd gathered at Cape Canaveral yesterday, NASA had to once again scrub the launch of the Artemis rocket. The fuel lines were leaking, and it was too risky. They had to count the cost. A failed launch would have destroyed all of the work and waste all of the money that had been invested in the space launch system these past 11 years. And it would delay the goal of eventually returning humans to the moon for the first time in 50 years. Getting to the moon for the first time was a costly endeavor. The Apollo project cost $25.4 billion in the 1960s and 70s. That would be $158 billion in 2020 dollars. And it cost lives. Its first crew, Apollo 1, died in a terrible fire in a pre-launch test. But in six space flights, 12 people walked on the moon. I mean, we take it for granted these days that that happened, but it's hard to put into words the triumph of the human mind and body and spirit that allowed Neil Armstrong to take those first steps on that spear of light that has the ancients marveled at. How many of you saw that live? One small step for a man, one giant leap for humankind. Now there are some who say it never happened, you know, one of those original conspiracy theories. And there are others who say that as amazing as it was to get to the moon, that it still wasn't worth all the money and all the lives lost before and after. Many of us might not think it's worth trying to go to the moon again. But as costly as it all is, do you really want to live in a world where humans 
aren't shooting for the moon. And can you even think about the world without seeing that marvelous blue marble image of our planet floating in black space taken by one of our Apollo 17 astronauts? <clears throat> you have to count the cost. And sometimes you have to pay the cost to do something great. I think that's what Jesus was trying to tell the large crowd who followed him in today's passage. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, there's a major shift that happens in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says there, when the days grew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. Taken up is Luke's phrase to describe Jesus ascending into the clouds to sit at the right hand of the Father. But it also describes the path it would take for him to get there. Jesus would first have to be taken up on the cross and crucified. He knew that this was coming and he had told his disciples now I think three times, but they still didn't get it. For everything they had been taught, the Messiah wasn't supposed to suffer and die. The Messiah was supposed to be lifted up on a throne to be a king and a warrior who would reestablish the kingdom of Israel. The disciples thought that if they followed Jesus' coattails, that they would be on the way to comfort, control, wealth, privilege, and power. And so if these disciples who thought this who were with Jesus every single day and got all the behind-the-scenes teaching that Jesus was doing, how much more would these huge crowds misunderstand Jesus? As Pastor Jennifer told us, they only saw Him when He was out in the spotlight, leading rallies, healing hundreds of people, and feeding thousands. I mean, who wouldn't like that? So Jesus wanted the crowd to understand what they were getting themselves into. They needed to know He was headed for the cross. They needed to know that following them would not lead to comfort, control, wealth, privilege, or power, and we need to know that too. Being a disciple then and now means being willing to give up anything, no matter how precious it seems. If it gets in the way of knowing Jesus and following His way, but the cost is ultimately worth it because it's the cost of living a full and abundant life. <clears throat> so let's call it, count the cost together. Jesus starts by saying what seems to be the unthinkable. Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother and children and wife and brothers and sisters and yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. First, I want to say that that word hate does not carry the same contempt or anger or hostility that it does for us. It's an ancient Semitic expression that means something more like detach yourself from or turn away from. We have to remember that Jesus' first 12 disciples literally left their homes and their families to follow him. And so he's telling this large crowd just very simply, if you want to be disciples like them, you have to do the same thing. I think Jesus is probably saying something a little bit different to us. 
After all, Jesus is no longer found in one human body in one physical location walking from Galilee to Jerusalem like he was 2,000 years ago. Today, we find the presence of the resurrected Jesus with us all the time, wherever we are. But it is still possible for our attachment to family to get in the way of following him. I want to say up front, I believe that healthy family relationships are not in conflict with discipleship. But there has to be a delicate balance in our lives. People who study family systems talk about the importance of finding a balance between closeness and distance, between connection and freedom in relationships. If you're too close to someone you love, you tend to merge with them until you don't know who you are or what you need or how you feel as an individual. Psychologists would say you can't differentiate your needs and feelings from the needs and feelings of another person. But we all know that if you're not close enough to someone you love, you can lose connection and intimacy and eventually the relationship itself. So it's a balance. It's important for couples to stay connected, but to also have their own friends and their own interests, to have their own time, to have their own lives. It's important for our children to always have a safe and nurturing place where they can return to us and have age-appropriate boundaries and rules that keep them close. But we also have to let them be their own people, to have their own interests, to play unsupervised with other children outside, to take risks, to make mistakes, to figure things out on their own. And so in family life, we see this paradox, this paradox that we have to detach from one another so that we can do the most loving thing possible. We have to detach from one another to be pulled apart so that we can give each other the space to flourish and grow and become the persons God is making us into and to trust that in turn, when we come back together, that that act of love actually will allow us to be more connected, more deeply, and to love each other more fully. So first, I think that Jesus is telling us to truly become who we are meant to be in him, to live our life to the fullest. We have to find that balance with our loved ones. And when they don't give us the freedom to be who we need to be, we have to create boundaries. We have to break away. And this is the hard part. As parents and as grandparents, we have so many expectations for our children. Often without realizing it, with the best of intentions, we plot out a course in our minds and hearts for how our children will behave and who they will be and what they will do. And it can be heartbreaking when they don't fulfill those expectations. And as children and grandchildren, we have all felt the other side of this. We can feel stifled by the weight of our parents' or grandparents' expectations of us. And we can feel practically controlled or emotionally manipulated by them when they exert their will over our lives. And all of this can stifle our spiritual growth. It can prevent us from becoming the people God intended us to be all along. It can pre prevent us from fulfilling and following our true callings in life. 
There's an example in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is teaching and drawing this large crowd and all these people are coming to him and these other people tell his family that he was, quote, going out of his mind. And his family went to restrain him. Maybe they didn't agree with what he was teaching. That's not what mom taught you. Maybe it felt threatening or offensive to them, or maybe they were genuinely afraid of what might happen to Jesus if he kept healing and teaching like that. But when Jesus heard that his mother and brothers were trying to stop him and get him to come home, he said, who are my brother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers, pointing to this crowd of people that were unrelated. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Even Jesus had to create boundaries and redefine family ties. And we do too. We have to have the courage to be the person that God has made us to be. To think for ourselves and to pursue our own passions and to make our own decisions and to create boundaries in relationships with loved ones that want to resist that. I'm not saying we'll always be right or do that well. But we have to be honest and proactive about that. And on the other side, we have to hold our loved ones more loosely. And maybe that's the hardest part of all. And as we think beyond just our biological families, the same thing should be true in our larger families and affiliations and groups that we find ourselves in. To follow Jesus, to truly live, we have to risk the cost of being our own people, of thinking for ourselves, of following our convictions, even if that makes other people in our church family or in our political party or in whatever group we're in upset or uncomfortable. And we have to allow others the grace and the freedom to do the same without so quickly questioning their loyalty to the family or to the tribe. This is the cost of truly living and letting others truly live. It's the cost of love. The other way I think we can understand Jesus' commandment to detach or turn away from our families is that we have to stop believing that our partners or our children or anybody else can fulfill us or bring us ultimate meaning in life. It's true that who we are is found in part by who we love and who loves us, by our family name. But Jerry Maguire was just dead wrong. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse cannot complete you. All the myths of our parenting culture are wrong. You're caring for your children. You're living vicariously through them. Even the healthiest relationship you can share with them cannot fulfill you. If you keep believing that your loved ones can bring you ultimate meaning in life, you will be sorely disappointed. You're putting a burden on them and the relationship that is too heavy. And if you can't see this, you won't be able to appreciate the imperfect but good relationships that you have with them. And if this is true with our own families, we have to expect that it will be true in church too. There is no perfect church that will make you feel perfectly cared for, whose programs will fill all your needs, whose members or ministers' theology or biblical interpretation or or political thoughts will completely line up with yours. No church family 
is perfect and no church family will fulfill you or make you who you are. The only thing that will truly fulfill you is your relationship with Jesus. I know that sounds cliche, but it's true. If you can put that in the right place, then these other relationships can actually flourish because they won't hold the weight of your identity and your worth and your joy. And so to make space for him and his way in our lives, we have to turn away from or detach from all those other ties that bind. Maybe that's enough sermon for today, but I've got more. Finally, Jesus says, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. And wasn't the first thing enough? The Greek here is say farewell or take leave of all your possessions. And again, I think we, before we start thinking about our own lives, we have to think about those first disciples. These 12 men literally left their homes and their livelihoods and their businesses and their jobs to literally travel with Jesus on foot everywhere he went. And he's simply telling the crowd, if you want to follow me to Jerusalem, if you want to be like them, you have to do the same thing. And so again, as, as modern disciples, we believe that we can follow Jesus wherever we are and follow Jesus with whatever we have. So what do we do with this command? as with family, there has to be a balance. We all have to have incomes from our jobs and our investments to survive and to pay for college and to cover medical expenses and to sustain our lives through retirement. It takes a lot of money and planning. We all have to have possessions to function. This takes a lot of time and effort, probably at least 40 to 60 hours a week, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not necessarily a conflict with our discipleship. But the question becomes, when is enough enough? How much of your life's motivation is to simply acquire more wealth? How much of your headspace is determined by dreaming about that next purchase or that next vacation or whatever that thing is you want to spend your money on? How much is your sense of security in life linked to how much money is in your accounts? How much do you look for happiness through material wealth or possessions? How much do we measure our success as a church by what we have in surplus and in savings? Are we allowing ourselves to struggle with the Holy Spirit as individuals in a church to find that balance between taking care of our needs and planning for our future and sacrificially giving to make sure that others' needs are met? It's not that Jesus is saying that our wealth or possessions are bad in themselves or by possessing them that we can't be disciples, but that we have to be careful about how much room they take up in our hearts and in our minds. For in the parable of the sower, Jesus says that some people are like the seed that grows up and is choked by thorns. These are the ones who hear the gospel, who hear the way of Jesus. But as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. But friends, the alternative is this. In Acts, we see the people of God moved by the Holy Spirit, sharing all they had in common and making sure that everyone's needs are met. And before that, in Jesus' ministry, and after that, in Paul's ministry, and the ministry of the other apostles, 
all of these early churches are sustained by people opening their homes and sharing food and sharing what they had. There had to be patrons. There had to be people with wealth who were willing to be generous. Holding on loosely enough to wealth and possessions enough to give is the cost of truly living in Jesus. So this morning, we also have to count the cost. We have to realize, like those, that crowd, that following Jesus will not lead to our comfort, control, wealth, power, or privilege. But instead of focusing just on the cost, I want to focus on the joy of the other side. You may have thought it was strange this Sunday when we're focusing so much on these hard words from Jesus that we sang, joyful, joyful, and that we invited each other to rejoice. But remember what the writer of Hebrews said about Jesus that it was for the sake of the joy set before him that he endured the cross. As Jesus walked to Jerusalem, he counted the cost, even crying tears of blood and begging the Father to, to, for another way besides the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he ultimately gave himself away knowing that there was joy on the other side. And I think that's why Jesus used such strong words in the passage we read today. He wants to strip away the delusion that anything but Him and His way can bring us fulfillment and worth and joy in this life. Jesus wants to invite us to let everything else go and to hold everything else more loosely. That is the cost of truly living. If we do this, if we follow Jesus, it may not feel like we're shooting for the moon and it, we may not even land among the stars. But we will be lifted up higher than we can imagine with Jesus into abundant life here and now and one day resurrected into life eternal. Thanks be to God. May it be so for us.